Hello and welcome to Primary Sources, a spin-off podcast from the Doctor Who show where we take what fans were saying about Doctor Who in the 80s and the 90s, generally in letters to Doctor Who magazine, and we riff on it. The conversation might stick closely to what's said in the letters or it might go somewhere else entirely. For this episode, I'm joined by Dylan Rees from the Doctor Who Too Hot for TV podcast. Hello, Dylan. Hi, Rob. How you doing? I'm not too bad. This hookup between Australia and the UK seems to be working. So far, so good. No, uh, no, no problems in transmission. My end. <laughs> Fabulous. Well, in front of me, I do have a copy of Doctor Who magazine. You're probably dying to know which issue it is. I am absolutely dying. I want to know what era and uh, what the fans were ranting about way back when. <laughs> okay, this is Doctor Who magazine two seven two mm-hmm. from the sixteenth of December, nineteen ninety eight. A vintage year for Doctor Who. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> Let's see what we can find. This first letter is called Digital Dished. Ooh, very exciting. Mm. The nine-hour extravaganza of Doctor Who on BBC Choice is all very good. But who on earth has got a digital decoder? I imagine there will be but a handful of you out there experiencing this amazingly generous dose of Doctor Who in November. Strange that the BBC should suddenly become so generous towards us now that they have a channel that very few people will be able to watch. Think about it. Why can't we have a Doctor Who night on BBC Two? Everything else seems to have been allowed this privilege. Blue Peter, Star Trek, Red Dwarf, Bridget Jones, Crystal Tips and Alistair. Okay, maybe not the last one, but who knows? A terrestrial Doctor Who night would be wonderful. You could have the obligatory quiz, the fans versus the stars perhaps, short documentaries on all aspects of the show, including the spin-off videos, novels, audio adventures, and the show's music, all subjects not yet touched upon. Possibly even show one of the spin-offs, Shakedown, for instance. Alternatively, why not show the bulk of the BBC Choice Doctor Who celebration on BBC Two, accompanied by the odd episode, maybe even episodes, such as the remaining ones from 60 Stories, The Web of Fear, and The Faceless Ones. Yet, whatever we say, do, think or believe, the BBC will no doubt do what the hell they like, for who are we to question them? That's Julian Jones via email. Ah, well, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. There Um, is. Now, first of all, do you are you aware of uh, the the weekend that he's talking the the night the Doctor Who night that he's talking about there? I'm aware of a Doctor Who night, but I thought it happened on some. Uh, wasn't this BBC Choice thing? Was that the thing with JNT appearing mm. in segments? So the JNT one that is um, was B Sky B, I think, in the early nineties. <sighs> That's the one I know. Now, this BBC Choice one, I know because I've recently, uh, as I'm sure you're aware, there's been a global pandemic and everyone's been locked in their houses. Really? Uh, I, I, yeah, yeah, I don't know whether anybody's told you about this, but uh, um, I one of my lockdown projects was I transferred all my old VHSs recorded off TV that have been sat in my dad's loft for years uh, into digital format. And this BBC Choice night was there. And it was basically a night of 
Doctor Who on BBC Choice. It was which is a precursor to BBC Three, what which Confidential used to be on, and it was they showed the TV movie Thirty Years in the TARDIS and uh, Genesis of the Daleks a couple of episodes, and I think the Daleks a couple of episodes, and it's hosted by Sylvester McCoy at a Panopta convention in uh, the late nineties. I know because I was at the event, so I remember them recording it. And it is just, it's a very tenuous Doctor Who night, but the best thing about it is they have a diary of fans at these conventions and they're quite interesting, shall we say. But uh, it's it's something that, that's, that never sits, I tried to upload it to YouTube and it got taken down for copyright reasons. And for some reason, this is the one bit of Doctor Who kind of TV ephemera from the UK that's constantly pulled off uh, the internet for whatever reason. That's very strange. So it sounds like you had a digital decoder, which Julian Jones is coveting in this letter. <laughs> I didn't. So I think. Oh. <laughs> so I think, if I remember correctly, my cousin recorded this for me because she was old enough that she could afford to have Sky or whatever it was, and we were just stuck with plain old terrestrial television. Right. Oh gosh, that's very interesting. I would love to see that footage. I'm. I'm sure I could hook you up. Mm, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll talk about offline. that offline. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. And I, I liked in this letter, you know, we, we might be able to see these remaining clips from Web of Fear and the Faceless Ones. Isn't that quaint? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can it actually is. come buy them. Uh, yeah, it's true. Like they're available everywhere now. I think it, the uh, this Julian he obviously makes he makes an interesting point of why isn't there a Doctor Who night on the BBC on the terrestrial channels? And of course, a few years later, they do end up doing one or two of those anyway. I think BBC Choice was fairly new, so it was very much about launching the channel rather like like what's a hook in to get people people like right. Doctor Who. But obviously. You know, the BBC did do a fair amount of themed Doctor Who stuff over the course of the 90s, and I think he's probably only a year off the BBC2 Doctor Who night, if I remember correctly. Oh, bless. Well, maybe they were reading Doctor Who magazine. Exactly. I do I do think his suggestion of... Uh, uh, this is a classic kind of 90s fan thing of assuming everybody is just really into doctor who as much as the average person of course if you do a doctor who night on a terrestrial channel then you you want to make it as appealing as possible and as much as i love shakedown return of the sontarans i don't think Mm. it's exactly broadcast quality and i don't know whether putting an episode of the stranger or something on there is the best way to bring in (laughs) new people or old fans alike because let's face it, if, if Doctor Who hasn't been on the screens for 10 years by the sort of TV movie, anybody that's watching is going to want to see some Tom Baker, some John Pertwee, may, maybe a bit of Peter Davison. They're not really going to want to see what the fans have been up to. Exactly. Now, look, speaking of Tom, I think it's time to segue into the next letter. Oh, fantastic. Which is titled, It's All Tom's Fault. <laughs> yeah. In Sex and the Single Gallifreyan, Doctor Who Magazine 268, you talk about revisionists who go out of their way to assume and then prove what we've been told earlier cannot be right and how often they complicate things to get their twisted views across. I've always liked the idea that the Doctor really was Susan's grandfather. It opens the door to so many untold mysteries about him, doesn't it? Just because, in all the time since she was on the show, no one ever followed up on the premise does not invalidate it. In fact, script editor Andrew Cartmel's era was the one that went out of its way to bring itself in line with several original ideas not touched on since the earliest Hartnell stories, such as the Doctor was one of his people's greatest engineers. 
He stated it clearly, while Sylvester McCoy's doctor hinted at the very same thing. It's only those who grew up watching Tom Baker who no doubt find this hard to reconcile. His doctor painted a picture of a halfwit who barely made it through school, and who somehow, through a combination of dumb luck and general science stage one, keeps saving the universe. Isn't it possible that Baker's doctor really was unstable, as his mentor put it at the end of Planet of the Spiders, and at times either really put people on, we know Troughton's doctor did that all the time too, or had lapses where he really didn't know what he was saying. It's possible that Baker, rather than revealing the truth, in opposition to what Hartnell's doctor had told us, was instead trying to obscure it, so even those from his own planet would have no idea what he was really up to. This was the legacy of the McCoy Doctor, which I so took to. And if McCoy's Doctor was hinting, in remembrance of the Daleks, that he really had worked side by side with Rassilon and Omega, confirming the very early Hartnell claims, then why shouldn't we also have a yet unseen family, which Troughton once described? I sure hope Doctor Who returns, with Paul McGann in tow, for a long run, sometime soon. There's just so much that's not even been scratched on the surface. That's from Harry R. Kajawa, Camden, New Jersey. Oh, I wonder if Harry's still watching now and wonders if he still feels the same way. Yeah, we've had some movement in that yeah. area. <laughs> Yeah, again, there's, there's a lot to unpack, isn't there? I mean, what do you think of this claim? That Do you think Tom Baker is this kind of buffoon? Do you think it's an act that he's putting on rather than actually being a buffoon? I've I've always thought it was just his character, not an act. Mm. Yeah, I no, I, I, I think so too. But I mean, his doctor, his doctor could switch from being very serious to sort of being very kind of buffoonish but i like i thought i just think it's kind of something that, that they now play on in the new series a bit of like the doctor just not fully understanding whatever culture he's within so it might seem stupid but I, to us or funny but i don't think it's ever quite i, I don't know i just I, I i don't think it's the act that, that that he thinks it is if that makes if that makes sense do you know who i think is doing an act tenant yes yeah yeah i can see that especially obviously he does that scene in uh the the girl in the fireplace where he pretends to be drunk and I think he actually pulls a fair amount of his performance from uh, oh yeah I am pretending to be something or other but really it's he's he's putting on a front because you know he's got he's got a lot of guilt and uh, grief yeah. underneath it yeah but this this letter it seems very impressed with the Hartnell doctor being the greatest engineer and and loves that Sylvester sort of comes back to it I guess that's the whole you know Davros I'm not just another time lord was that ever shown or is that I an outtake? I think that's I think that's a deleted scene. But also, I don't. If you buy into the whole Cartmel master plan, which played out in the New Adventures, but not exactly as probably Cartmel would have done it. I mean, I don't think he'd heard that mm. phrase until about the year two thousand or something. That's right. <laughs> I, I don't think it's implied that William Hartnell did all this stuff with. Um, it kind of plays more into the timeless ch- children. But the mm. idea of the whole thing of the other is like an earlier version of the Doctor somewhere in the past, I think. That's that, that's my understanding. It's not that William Hartnell's was around for like 10,000 years just doing loads of stuff in Time Lord history. That's right. I love the idea that that mythos is there, but I was always glad it didn't play into the main show. And obviously, that we've had the Timeless Children recently, and I actually quite enjoyed that for what it was. 
but it it it's all it's all got a bit new adventures if you know what I mean, and it just I I prefer that stuff to kind of be on the peripherals of Doctor Who, but not necessarily play into the main show. Well, exactly, and I mean I think you've probably even seen me say this on Twitter that first series of Chibnalls where he goes I'm not doing any old villains I'm not doing any of this fanish stuff. In his second series, he goes completely the opposite way, and I think, my God, who who is watching this? Yeah, I, it's 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 a strange one. I've never been sure whether it's like course correction or whether he gets to the end of the first season thinking he's gonna like go. He goes into the first season thinking he's gonna make um, a second season straight away because uh, you know if rumors are to be believed, they cut it down to ten episodes so they could do a series a year. But it's mm. such a car crash in terms of the production side of things, as new teams always seem to find it, that um, he gets to the end of season one with nothing else to do. Uh, with nothing ready for season two and just goes i'm going to take my next three seasons and cram them into one that, that that's always the way i've looked at it because you know when you start with spyfall that feels yes. like a finale to another series and then the fugitive doctor you feel like that's almost a finale to another series and then the end of the stuff it's like he's <laughs> I'm, I'm going to put my whole era into this one season and then i'm pretty much done well, maybe that uh, that rumour that he had a five-year plan uh, is true, except he has compacted it. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it, I, I admire his uh, his way of thinking. You know, he's, he, he's got his boxes he wants to tick, and uh, he's he's gone and done it, and be damned if, uh, if that annoys any fans. <laughs> and he's ticking them. All right, this final letter uh, plays to the strengths of your podcast, actually, because we're going to talk some audio. Oh, nice. And it says, uh, well, the heading is Missing Stories, Cut the Chat. Okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I am writing regarding the Missing Stories audios, which BBC Worldwide may be planning to continue, as mentioned in the recent Gallifrey Guardian. While I and many others would welcome the chance to hear more Missing Stories on audio, I am sure I am not alone in hoping that this time the stories are released intact with their original opening and closing theme music, and without the pointless editing of dialogue. For example, try and find Lesterton's lines, There are four, they can't be reproducing, in the Power of the Daleks release, one of a number of lines missing from that story alone. Or Patrick Troughton's brief tootling on the recorder, which closed the final episode. Another problem I noticed with the releases was that, in some dramatic action scenes, the narrator was having to talk over the characters speaking. I appreciate that we have to have narration, as these stories were originally intended for a visual medium. Perhaps a way around this would be to have the narration on the left-hand speaker, so we could listen to the action on the right-hand side if the narrator has to speak over the dialogue. That's from D. Tate, Glasgow. Oh, Doctor Who fans, they're always so concerned with the two <laughs> seconds that are missing rather than the 28 minutes that are there, aren't they? And the theme music. Mm. Gotta have the theme music for every episode. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, I, I think this is... What what year did you say this was? This is uh, December of 98. In December of 98. So, I guess when he was talking about Power of the Daleks... He was talking about that cassette release because I don't know whether the CDs had started coming out again at that point. Yeah, I think cassette probably. Yeah, so that cassette release. I mean, this is before we really. I think the restoration team were floating around at that point. They'd started doing stuff around '95, but those initial missing episode releases, they were very much like they were the recordings that fans made from their television screens 
put onto a cassette for kept for 30 years and then transferred at the highest quality they could to tape. Mm. And I'm sure they were missing bits because I'm sure there was all sorts of kind of issues with the speed of the tapes and stuff like that. So, oh, God, I, yes. I mean, certainly as a sort of 12-year-old hearing those recordings for the first time, I didn't know that Lesterson was missing a line or two. <laughs> uh, I was just excited that I could hear Power of the Daleks in one of its forms. Now, D. Got- Tate knew. Yeah, D. Yeah. Tate in Glasgow, he knew. Exactly. Three. Classic D. Tate. But... Um, <laughs> It, it is that, that it, I mean obviously we've seen this with the Macro Terra recently when they cut that scene that was um, the the rough and tumble machine or whatever it is mm. uh, I mean I I hate to think what will happen when they get to the Daleks master plan uh, on the animations but I know fans will be up in arms because I can just imagine that being cut down into like a two hour epic rather than uh, animating 12 episodes or something like that well, well, when it comes to video, not just cut down, but but they added things like that uh, scene of the helicopter flying around the tentacles coming out of the water. I mean, that was never a thing on television, and yet they add it in yeah. the uh, video. Uh, well, I think the creative licenses. I I I don't mind a creative license on the on the animations, but um, I understand the need for. I understand why fans would want a complete. Um, audio version of a missing story but then having said mm. that the bbc probably didn't know there was things missing you know i mean there was yeah. that whole there was that whole thing with the restoration team when they first started working on it because it was somebody had said oh you know fans had complained about the titles being cut out of the video releases when they were released as sort of omnibus editions and so they said oh here's death to the dial it's complete and it wasn't complete because it was actually missing <laughs> like 10 seconds somewhere so i the, the fan in me is like, oh, yeah, I do need to see that 10 seconds at some point, but I'm not particularly... Me personally, um, unlike D-Tate, I'm not particularly bothered about if I'm missing 10 seconds of Doctor Who. Sure. And what about this concept of, of the narration in one speaker and the rest in the other speaker? Yeah, that's that's <laughs> that, that's an interesting concept. I don't quite know where I would stand on that myself. It's... Um, I. I mean, what would you do? Would you turn off? Would you unplug one of your speakers? Would you take one he- headphone <laughs> off? Like, and the idea that you're like, I'm gonna, I want to listen to the narration this time, then I'm gonna rewind and then listen to the action. Yeah, it seems yeah. it seems very odd. Yeah, and in mono as well. Yes, <laughs> I mean those tape those tape recordings of tape recordings were bad enough quality as it was without reducing it to one speaker in mono it just it, it sounds like a disaster waiting to happen i imagine you would hear you would hear nothing you just get sort of a and there, there, there's the glorious 10 seconds of dialogue you were missing you'd have to be like a, a dj sort of mixing between the the speakers Yes, it's true. But I mean, I'm sure it could give people wonderful little DJ mixes that could do. They could put them over some like hard trance or something, whatever was big in the late (laughs) 90s. And you could have Lesterson speaking all over it. Fabulous. Well, we've gone from a digital dish to hard trance in the space of 20 (laughs) minutes there, which I'm pretty impressed by. (laughs) Dylan, thank you so much for joining us for Primary Sources. That was a lot of fun. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. Okay. Okay. 